us again for, for this uh, final class uh, of this three-part series um, on Maran and Rabbi uh, Sakaro. It's been uh, so informative so far and um, so important. And I, I've seen the, the Maran Mekomot and um, I know we have a lot to get through tonight, so I'm not going to take up anyone uh, any more time. And I think for today, um, it's best that we leave uh, questions until the end. Uh, and then, and then the Chacham can then take them at the end of the shiur, so we don't run uh, over too much of the time. Um, anyway, that, that's all from me. Uh, welcome everyone, and it's all yours, Rachav. Thank you so much for having me here once again. It's a real honor. Uh, like Avi mentioned, we have a lot to get through today, and much less time than I would like for, for this source sheet. But I believe that because we've had such a productive time learning together the last two sessions, that we can make some serious uh, headway here in this uh, source sheet as well. Avi mentioned also if we could wait till the end of the shiur to ask questions. Normally that's not our style, but we wanted to make sure, I know you guys are eight hours later than me, some of you even later, those of you from Israel and from other places. So I will be here for as long as you possibly want after my shiur for you to ask as many questions as you need. I'm really here for me to the middle of the day. Uh, and until then, Bezat Hashem, if you have something pressing, uh, please feel free maybe to reach out to Avi and to send it to him as a message and he'll pipe up if he feels it's... Uh, Relevant, and if not, I'm more than happy to wait around for everybody at the end of the shiul, Bezad Hashem. I don't see him, but I heard that Rabbi Levi was here, and I now feel a little bit uh, unsure about whether I have permission to teach Torah in his presence, but if I will ask him for permission to please give my shiul today, I would very much appreciate it, Bezad Hashem. Ya'arich yavimem blessed with a long life and a lot of health. The last two shiurim we spent studying about the acceptance of Maran, Rabbi Yosef Karo, the Shulchan Aruch, in the Sephardic community and beyond. I mentioned in the past that this topic is dear to me, not so much because I am what you might dub a Hasid of Maran, but more importantly that I believe that if Am Yisrael was able to get onto the same page and observe Torah and Mitzvot in a similar enough fashion, then the problems that we see in Am Yisrael, many of them, not all, but many of them would fall by the wayside. It's why last year we dedicated so much time to the understanding of how the Shulchan Aruch was accepted or not accepted, particularly in Yemen, in which they viewed Maran as a pashran, as a, as a compromiser per se, but that this compromise on what you might consider to be a compromise on truth, it's not necessarily that when compromising on truth, you end up in falsehood, nobody would tell you the Shulchan Aruch is false. But when you compromise on truth, sometimes you're able to achieve peace. And this peace, this shalom, which is the seal of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, it's where we ended last week's shiur, is really the motivating force behind Maran, behind the Shulchan Aruch, behind those who gave up their minhagim to accept Maran Shulchan Aruch, or didn't, all revolves around this question of how important is unity in Am Yisrael. I want to make it clear before I explore any other avenues today that my stance is like the first source on the source sheet. I have to give you my frame of reference. Sometimes people get a little confused. I have a shiur online called Sefardi Chachamim. I don't remember the exact title. The ability to explain opinions that they don't necessarily agree with, but that believe are important for the world to know. Not everything I'm going to read to you today I agree with per se on a personal level in my Bidamidash. But it's crucial when understanding the acceptance of Maran to view it from all the angles you possibly can. 
And so my frame of reference before I explore further is that which Mori Harav Yaakov Peretz writes in his book, Emeth Yaakov, Ochot Harav Kilato. He writes in source one. <coughs> the source sheet was sent out uh, through the WhatsApp group. If you cannot find it or you don't know where it is, you're welcome to go to shiviti.org, S-H-I-V-I-T-I.org forward slash Chabura, H-A-B-U-R-A, and you'll find the source sheet over there as well. Maran, the author of the Shulchan Aruch, is referred to by everybody Maran, as Maran, our master. Rashet Hevot, it's the acronym of Mataim Rabbanim Nismach. The 200 rabbis agreed to his opinion. And you remember that we've discussed this in the past. I don't wish to get stuck on it. And furthermore, Chachamim have told us, Go to Yosef, whatever he tells them you should do. This is a play on a verse from Parashat Miketz. That the general approach of Chachmei Sfarad is to rule halakha in accordance with Maran. Today, we're going to discuss the extent of this acceptance. So we've accepted Maran HaShulchanuch. The question is to what extent? Were there exceptions? Are there other instances in which we didn't? I'm certain that everybody here is familiar with at least one or two or three or ten places in which Sefaradim, who will sometimes tell other people, how dare you not follow Shulchanuch, that they themselves don't follow Shulchanuch. There's a fascinating work, Divrei Shalom Ve'emet, which I'll quote later on, uh, written by Rabbi Shalomot Toledano. I had the zakhut to study by him a little bit a few years back. Rabbi Shalomot Toledano wrote a book, Divrei Shalom Ve'emet, and, and uh, it's essentially there to protect older Sephardic Minhagim from the attacks that Hacham Vodei Yosef and his family put on many old Sephardic Minhagim. Nonetheless, it's very unique how Rabbi Shalomot Toledano navigates its politics. It's held in high esteem in some circles in the Yosef family uh, world. In here, Rabbi Shalomot Toledano says that for all of the times that Chacham Vadiah hates on the Moroccans or on this group or the next group for not following Maran, he actually took out a pencil and wrote down halachot and numbers and inconsistencies in Chacham Vadiah Yosef's own opinion. You who claim to always follow Maran, here are the 20 or 30 times where you don't follow Maran. What do you say about that? And this challenge of we've accepted Maran, but clearly we've accepted Maran except for when we didn't. That's the topic of today's shiur. When are the times in which Chachmei Sfarad did not accept the rulings of Maran? Why? What are the other factors? And how could you possibly have a rule of we've accepted the rulings of Maran except for when we don't? So then, you, did you accept the rules of Maran or did you not? And that is today's shiur. If you look with me at source 2, Rabbi Yaakov Paraji. Rabbi Yaakov Paraji was born in 1660 and died in 1730. He lived in Egypt. He was the Av Bet Adin of Alexandria in Mitzrayim. And he writes the following words in his book, Shut Maharif. In these places, that we rule in this region like the Shulchan Aruch because he is the Marad Atra, he's the master of this place. This is a Talmudic concept of Marad Atra, that you are in a zone, a territory of somebody else, you follow their halachic rulings. The words of Maran have been established here as if they were given to Moshe Rabbeinu on Har Sinai. She'en bashum achloket. And there are no disagreements about this halakha. Now, you're familiar with the last two classes, that clearly this statement is an exaggeration. Yeah, but it's telling you the severity with which this chachamim held Maran's words. And even if many argue with Maran, if you remember last time we discussed, even if a thousand argue with Maran, and we don't have a case in which a thousand Chachamim argue with Maran. I'm not even sure if there is such a situation in Halakha, 
but the purpose is to illustrate, through exaggeration, just how high regarded Maran was in these circles. And anybody who deviates from Maran's words, listen carefully, if they follow a more stringent opinion than that which is mentioned in the Shulchan Aruch, how much more so if they're lenient against Shulchan Aruch, it's as if he literally violated one of the teachings of the Torah, and he's considered one who denigrates his rabbi and ultimately loses his portion in the world to come. Rabbi Yaakov Paraji says that in Egypt, we've accepted the rulings of Maran as if they were given to us by Moshe Rabbeinu or Haqzinai. Exaggeration? Fine. Even if many argue with Maran, we still accept his words. And anyone who deviates from the words of Maran, this is as if they're deviating from the Torah itself. Egypt, 1660. Maran in his own teshuvot extends this much farther than just the Sephardic communities who accepted Maran, and you should know it's very crucial to this conversation, to understand that Maran operated himself, he viewed his Bet Hadin and Sfat as if he was the Sanhedrin, as if he was the Bet Din Hagadol. And unless you're willing to accept that Maran viewed his Bet Hadin as the Bet Hadin Hagadol, you're going to have a very hard time with understanding how Maran did or didn't do certain things that he did or didn't do. Now, obviously, if that premise is not accepted, then in that case, the whole conversation falls by the wayside. But Maran believed that his betadin was so authoritative, that the rule of the Sepharadim in Eretz Yisrael was so authoritative, that he proved in Source 3 that Ashkenazim who would come to Eretz Yisrael would have no choice but to give up their minhagim and become Sepharadim. And he writes this numerous times in Afkat Rochel, here I quoted you in Source 3. And this is not just an opinion that Maran had about himself, but if you look in Source 4, Rabbi Shalom Moshe Chai Gagin. For those of you who are in my Shiviti UK Chavura on Tuesdays, we've been studying the writings of Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin. This is the grandfather of Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin. So Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin comes from the Yerushalmi family. Rabbi Shalom Moshe Chai Gagin is half uh, from a Sephardic family, interesting, half from a Yemenite family. He's also a descendant of the Sharabi family from Yemen, and it's an interesting mix. He is the Rosh Yeshiva, or at least in some point he studies in Yeshivat HaMekubalim, which is Yeshivat Bet El, in the old city of Jerusalem, for those who are familiar. He lived in 1832, passed away in 1883, which makes him about 51 years old. Ulefize, says, according to this, says Rabbi Shalom Moshe Chai Gagin, that we, the Sephardim, are the majority of the Jews in Eretz Israel, more than Ashkenazim who live here. Now it's a fact that even though today's modern state of Israel pitches its own history as mostly European Zionists who came to Israel and founded a country, a modern country, anyone who has studied any bit of Sephardic history, of Israeli history, and knows that this is a sheker v'kazav that serves two opposing political uh, um, ideologies in Am Israel, both those of the extreme uh, anti-religious uh, Zionist movement and also that of the ultra-Orthodox anti-Zionist movement. Both of them wish to remove the Sephardim and religious people from the story of the founding of the State of Israel. I have a shiur on YouTube called Dancing in the Shadows, which discusses much about this. Alken, achenu bnei, sorry. Whether it's the old Ashkenazi community or the new one, they must rule in halacha like Maran. There's one law in Yerushalayim, and that is Shulchan Aruch. 
And this was what happened practically that when Ashkenazim came to Israel, they became Sephardim. But nowadays, he's saying now in the 1800s, there's a new wave of Ashkenazi rabbis who have come to Israel. And they've allowed themselves to rule halacha the way they ruled in Ashkenaz outside of Israel. Uh, in uh, uh, opposition to the rulings of Maran, the leader of Eretz Yisrael. And even though they initially started out as we are more religious than the Sevaradim, we're going to be stricter than the Sevaradim, ultimately they led to being more lenient than the Sevaradim. They said, that's what we did in Ashkenaz. We want us now to come change our minhagim. What are they going to answer on the day of judgment after 120 years? That they violate every single day of their existence, the rulings of the Shulchan Aruch in Eretz Israel. That his rulings have been accepted all over Eretz Israel. So here, not just Maran and his generation perceives himself as the leader of Am Israel in Eretz Israel. Already you find a few hundred years later, the Bet Din of the Sephardim in Yerushalayim, which is the Bet Din in Yerushalayim, you must understand, the Sephardim are the Jews in Eretz Israel. Their working arrangement with Ashkenazim is when you come here, you now become Sephardim. By the way, it's why I don't complain so much when I hear about Ashkenazim doing the opposite to Sephardim. It bothers me, of course it bothers me, but everyone deserves a taste of their own medicine. There were times which Sephardim didn't want to marry Ashkenazim. So, for that evil, Sevaladim deserve sometimes Ashkenazim don't want to marry them. It happens. The world is an ugly place, and when we're ugly, we get ugly back. I'm not saying it's a good thing, simply that it's something you can't complain about because none of us are free of this type of uh, attitude towards each other. But you find here, already in the 1800s, that this was the rule. And now begins a revolution of Ashkenazim in Eretz Israel who are ruling against Maran Shulchan Ruch, much to the chagrin of Rabbi Shalom Moshe Chaydegin. But the real question is, was Maran's rule really that accepted? Was it universally accepted in the world of Sfarad? We saw already in his generation, Chachamim that weren't certain. You had Chachamim who didn't want Maran, they were about Maran's students worshipping him. We read uh, last week, uh, last time we studied together, all about Chachamim that banned the Bet Yosef from their Bet Midrash. You weren't allowed to study Maran's works in the Bet Midrash. And this slowly happens later in life that Maran's teachings are accepted throughout Sfarad. And here I wish to refer you to an article of Rabbi Yosef Faur, Alav Shalom. We lost a big Tamich Khan this year. Of, of un, I don't even know that anyone knows how much we lost in order to know what needs to be replaced. And I'm coming from someone who's not from his Talmudim, but a mind, uh, uh, understanding and approach that is crucial for Amisai. He has an article that I, I have three different versions of. Called Yachas Chachmeh HaSefaradim L'Samchut Maran Keposek. The attitudes of the Sefaradim towards Maran as a Posek. It's a unique article. It's Chacham Faur's understanding, at least then, of Maran and the Shukhan Aruch. I'm going to be quoting it extensively here in this article. So you're going to see, we're going to keep jumping back to this article. I'm going to mix it in with other sources that we brought so far. Here says Chacham Faur. In source 5, even though Maran was accepted universally across all of the Sephardic denominations. Not in all of the 
even though Maran, as a basic rule, was accepted among all the Sephardim, in all of the communities of the Sephardim, but not in every place did Maran's acceptance mean the same thing. So everyone accepted the rulings of Maran, but there were limits to that acceptance, and different communities accepted Maran in perhaps a more limited fashion than other communities. As we've discussed in the first year, that there were historic reasons why Am Yisrael needed one decisive force in Halakha, and that was the reason for the popularity of Maran Shulchan Aruch. And there were reasons why the Chachamim of that generation were willing to give up their own personal Halakhic stances to adopt the unifying code of Maran Shulchan Aruch, because there was a need for it at that time. This is going to lead us down a rabbit hole of perhaps, as I mentioned at the end of last week, perhaps the time for independent halachic voices has come, but we haven't reached that phase in our shiur yet today. Baram, nonetheless, that when those external historic pressures were no longer there, the top of page two, the Chachamim slowly began to reclaim their independence and autonomy in the world of Halakha. And to slowly shift away from the absolute authority of Maran HaShulchan Aruch. This histaygut, this slow shift away from Maran as an absolute authority, happened in stages. Intentionally so that the community would not be aware that Maran is being abandoned. And that even though we proved today that Maran's authority was challenged tremendously, only the poskim of the generation were truly aware of just how much we were shifting away from Maran. So here says there's a shift. There's a shift away from conformity of the Shulchan Aruch towards independent autonomy of Chachamim, which was always the case before Maran. And for this temporary period in which we accept Maran, there was a, slow, a certain acceptance. But once there was no more need for that, and you could argue what changed that made that happen, I could have a conversation about that at a different time. Chachmei Sfarad slowly began to reclaim their independence, but in such a way that the population knew we follow Shulchan Aruch, but the poskim knew we have liberty at times to deviate from the words of Maran Shulchan Aruch. And I know that this shiur can get me in trouble with certain circles, but I'm not choshesh from you. I don't suspect you that any of you will have anything in your hearts against me for this shiur today. And this brings us to the most practical point. One of the hardest things that we've discussed in the last two shiurim is how do we deal with discrepancies in the Shulchan Aruch? We mentioned the Rambam, a Mishneh Torah that is pure, that is clean. We're going to discuss that soon. That has no contradictions. And if you find contradictions, normally it's because of errors in print or things like that, as Rav Kapach already proved over and over and over again in his Mishneh Torah. But you have Maran, sometimes in this halakha he rules one way, in that halakha it's a completely opposite ruling in that direction. And we mentioned that Maran is a Pashran, that's what the Rabbi Ratzon Rusi told us last week, that there, there are times where Maran had, knew the Minhag was already this way, so he accepted it that way, but in this place he still had an ability to change, so he changed things. But it leads to an inconsistent approach to halakha. Again, we're replacing integrity and truth with peace and unity. And so here I wish to introduce you to the second article that we'll be quoting a lot today. And that is that of Chacham ben Sion Abba Shaul. Chacham ben Sion Abba Shaul is a beautiful Tamikham. Not as studied in the Sephardic world as I would like. 
Chacham Benzion Abashaul, partially because of the wars of the Yosef family on Benzion Abashaul and his integrity. Chacham Benzion Abashaul was one of the Talmudim of Yeshivat Tawat Yosef. He studied by Rabbi Tzadka, by Rabbi Zalatia. He was a classmate of Rabbi David Shalush, Rabbi Bar Yosef, Chamor Chayliyahu, Rabbi Chaim David Halavi, Rabbi Chaim Sion Levi of Panama. This whole generation of Sephardic Chachamim came out of the same class. And these were very influential leaders in Am Yisrael for the next generation, which we've lost every single one of them. And now, we, unfortunately, we could say we lost every single one of them. Chambetion Abashol is a beautiful story. Before I tell you anything about him, you have to know who he was. Chambetion Abashol was an Iranian Jew uh, born in Eretz Yisrael. And it's important for me to tell you that because I, I am disturbed very often by how little respect Iranian Jewry gets in the Jewish community. Uh, there were Chachamim in Paras. There were Chachamim in Iran. It's a mistake. If someone doesn't know about them, it's because they didn't study about them. They chose not to study about them. It bothers me tremendously that this is an underappreciated group of, of Jews. And I don't say this on a personal level. On a real level, Torah level. And one who familiarizes themselves, for sure, Iran had its relationship with Iraq. But there's a beautiful style of Torah that comes out of this world as well. And it would be chaval for us to, to lose out on that. Chacham Benzion Abashul was Rosh Yivav Poat Yosef in Yerushalayim. And he was always known, famous, if you've ever seen a picture of him, he had a, a short-trimmed beard, which in the ultra-Orthodox world is a big uh, deal, because if you're a Rosh Yeshiva, the longer the beard you have, the more important you are. So if you have a short beard, you're a, a less important person. What matters inside the head is much less relevant than what happens on your face. And here, Chacham Benzion Abashul always kept a very trim, short, neat beard, and one of his students wanted to ask Chacham Benzion Abashol, he said, Rabbi, why do you have such a short beard? It ruins your reputation. We tell people we're your students. Ah, the rabbi with no beard. That's what you... Says Chacham Benzion Abashol, I wish that people will listen to the things that I say, not because of my beard, but because of what I'm saying. And so I don't want to have a long beard. They shouldn't be distracted from what I'm actually saying. People, my students listen to me because of what I say, not because of what grows on my face. This student was so inspired, he went, he trimmed his beard. Also, he went to work. He came back the next week to Chambetzion uh, He was fired as the principal of his yeshiva. He said, Rabbi, they fired me. He says, well, clearly near yeshiva, they only listen to you because of the size of your beard, not because of anything good that you say. Uh, me, I have a different uh, ability to, to have Talmidim nonetheless. Chambetzion Abashaul was a special Talmid Chacham, Kharif. And he has an entire introduction to the second volume of his book, an entire interaction that I recommend if you have the skills to study on your own, you can find it for free online. I'm happy to send it by email to anybody who needs. An entire interaction on the acceptance of Maran HaShulchan Aruch, which we'll deal with much today. Source 6. We found in a few places in Maran that there are discrepancies between what Maran writes in one place and what Maran writes in another place. If I can give you an example off the top of my head. When Maran writes about when Shabbat ends, whether we rule like the Geonim, which is what Sephardim have done time immemorial, or like Rabbeinu Tam, there seems to be contradictory opinions in Maran. Another example I could think of off the top of my head, uh, regarding Sukkah, Sukkah. So whether you're allowed to put the Schach on top of something that receives Tuma or not. In one place Maran says you can, and in another place Maran says that you're not allowed to put Schach on top of a ladder, which seems to contradict each other. Now you should know, if we're dealing with a world of contradictions in Maran, I have to be honest, there are really two approaches. And I will, I will narrow down the Sephardic world into two approaches. 
those who believe what Chacham ben Siyon Abashul is going to say now, which is that Maran is not consistent. Then Maran says one thing here for one time and one thing over there for a different reason. And there are different factors which motivate Maran to say what he says, even though they contradict. There's the opinion of Chacham Ovedi Yosef, which he spent most of his life trying to prove. And that is that Maran is consistent. And if Maran contradicts himself in one place from what he says in another place, it's because Maran changed his mind. And Chacham Ovedi Yosef has to jump through hoops to show you which one of those opinions is actually Maran's opinion. Or that if you find Maran writes something here, there's always a reason why Maran wrote something that he wrote. There's never a contradiction in Shulchan Aruch. And this is really the approach of Maran that has become the prevalent opinion, at least among the Sephardim who are uh, popular followers of Chacham Ovedi Yosef. And I think that this is something that's important to know, that what I'm going to say today would seem very foreign in the Bermidash of Chacham Ovedi Yosef. It says, from these discrepancies, you can see that there's actually a theme in the rulings of Maran and the Shulchan Aruch. That even though in some places Maran rules like one opinion among the Rishonim, in another place he rules like a different one because he felt that even though he ruled in one direction, he still was concerned about the rulings of someone else. Why? Listen carefully to this saying of Hamimatiyon Abba Shaul. Because when Maran comes to rule in his Shulchan Aruch, says Hamimatiyon Abba Shaul, he is not ruling based off of Talmudic analysis. Maran is inventing essentially a new type of Psaqa Now how new that is, I recommend you read, there are some wonderful articles about maybe this was something that existed even before. Maran is not going back to the Talmud to reanalyze the sugya. Maran says, we have Rishonim. My job is now to determine which of the Rishonim we accept their opinions and which of them we don't. And therefore, Maran is no longer analyzing Talmud, but sorting out Rishonim. This is a fundamental uh, rule to understand when reading Maran Shulchan Aruch. Maran himself writes this in his introduction to the Bet Yosef. And therefore, Kevan because Maran himself is not ruling based on Talmudic law, Sometimes we choose to follow another opinion that we know for certain is okay, whereas Maran is on the fence. This leads to a whole new understanding of Maran, that his halachot are not what we call vada'im, his halachot are not set in stone, but his halachot are sfekot in general. They're a doubt because Maran is always dealing with two opinions or three opinions or five opinions and he's ruling like one of them over the other ones or many of them over the minority of them. This will lead to a practical scenario in which when we have doubts in what Maran is saying, when there are doubts against Maran's ruling, so is Maran law or is Maran just maybe the law? And if that's the case, then that leads to all these exceptions that you find in Sephardic communities. Let me get to some of them right now. In source 8, we therefore must go back and look again to this acceptance of Maran, to reassess our acceptance. When our Chachamim said they accepted Maran, did they accept his opinion completely? And all of the other opinions that Maran mentions, they're all pushed off, meaning they're, they're all false. So when Maran says it's law, everything else is wrong. Or maybe we accept Maran as he rules like the majority, but it doesn't nullify the opinion of the minority. So what's the difference? Who cares? 
אם צריכים לחוש לחולקים במקום שיכול בקל לחוש לדבריהם. The real נפקמינה, the real consequence of whether we accept מרן as law, or we accept מרן as simply sorting out between different opinions of law, is that in the second case, when there are those who are stricter than מרן, and it's very easy to follow them, then we have an obligation to err on the side of caution and not rule like מרן. And here, Rabotai, is where you're going to begin seeing that Sepharadim have a very hard time being lenient in places where Maran is lenient, and they instead adopt what some might think, that's an Ashkenazi opinion. Not necessarily is it an Ashkenazi opinion. Sometimes Chachmei Sefarad saw an opinion of Maran, and they felt it's really easy to just be strict like those other opinions that Maran, he rejected, and therefore they choose to go down this road. Ad Kedekach, that if you look in the writings of Chacham Mordechai he'll tell you that in many places in Baghdad, and this was his family's custom, that wherever they could easily follow the words of the Ramah, and it would not contradict the rulings of Maran, that's what they did. So essentially you find Sepharadim that are being stricter than Maran, contrary to everything we just said earlier in the last two and a half shiurim. To understand how this plays out, we must begin to explore the exceptions that exist in the world of Chachmei Sepharad in terms of how they accepted Maran. So we know we accepted the rulings of Maran, except for when we didn't. Let's analyze some of those places in which we didn't. In source 9. We find in many places that the Acharonim who come after Maran, they're concerned about the opinion of those who argue with Maran. They're not certain that we should be lenient like Maran. Especially in places where there's a biblical consideration. Especially in places where it's easy to be strict. He quotes a Birkei Yosef, the Chida who says that if it's possible to be stricter than Maran, and it doesn't take too much effort, then that's what you should do. So does the Chida accept the rulings of Maran? Or does he accept the rulings of Maran unless it's very easy to not accept the rulings of Maran? That's a break one. And because of this, you find, like the Chida writes in Berkei Yosef and Chaim Sha'al and other places, we're going to explore this soon, that when a person is in doubt as to whether to make a bracha or not, and Maran says to make a blessing, but others argue with Maran, so the Sefaradim, not myself, we make a blessing like Maran, but the Sefaradim, especially in the modern Sephardic world, will not make a blessing that Maran tells them to recite, because Sabal, it's a, it's a biblical doubt, we don't want to say God's name in vain. Is Maran the law, or is Maran maybe going to make you say Hashem's name in vain? That's exactly what Chachmei Sefarad are dealing with at this point. The Gamavrinan Sfek Sveka Neged Maran. We have an idea that you can say a Sfek Sveka. Anyone know what Sfek Sveka is? Sfek Sveka, when you have a doubt as to whether meat is kosher or not, you cannot eat the meat. Why? Because it's a one doubt about a biblical prohibition, and if you eat that meat, you might be violating a biblical law. But if you have a doubt as to a rabbinic prohibition, so you're allowed to eat that. Why? Because the rabbinic law is not as stringent as biblical law. So how can you act on something that may be biblically prohibited? You create a double doubt. Maybe it's this, and maybe like that, and then you're able to violate a biblical prohibition. Yeah, we can explore in a different view how this halachic mechanism works exactly, but you find already that among the writings of Chachmei Svarad, like here he quotes the Rav Nadiv Lev, that if there's a double doubt against Maran, Chachmei Sfarad are willing to violate the words of Maran so long as you can create a double doubt in the words of Maran. And that's even if Maran himself, you're using him against himself. If you look at the bottom of page 2 on the left, there's one other place where Chachmei Sfarad 
were extremely stringent, not in accordance to the rulings of Maran. Bisu erva, anything to do with sexual immorality, promiscuity, modesty. Chachmei Svarad always reserved the right to be stricter than Maran himself. Machmirim neged harod Maran, like Rabbi Yom Tov Al-Ghazi writes in Simchat Yom Tov. The Ben and others accept that ruling as well. So here you already begin to find that there are numerous places where Chachmei Svarad don't accept the rulings of Maran. You find here on page 3, right before source 10, that last paragraph. This stance is very popular, especially in the North African Jewish community. Maran's rulings were accepted, but to a certain point. Which works of Maran were accepted? That which our rabbis told us, that we didn't accept the rulings of Maran that he wrote in his letters. That which we accepted the rules of Maran, it's not because of Maran's logic, we accepted in ourselves to follow his rulings, the rulings of his that he publicized in Shulchan Aruch, but not everything that Maran says we follow. Says Rabbi Ben Tzion Abashaun, and here it's important to understand why many Sephardic communities will do something contrary to Maran. Because when we say we accepted Shulchan Aruch, we accepted the Shulchan Aruch, not Maran, just the Shulchan Aruch. And if there are other things that appear in other books of Maran, Afkad Rochel, other places, those are not binding. Because we didn't accept Maran as a person. We accepted Shulchan Aruch as a code of law. Now whether or not all Sephardic communities agree with any of the things that we said, these opinions are definitely scattered among Chachmei Sfarad. And because of that, it's important for us to understand that the bottom, the common denominator among them is we accepted the rulings of Maran except for when we didn't. Maybe because it's not written in the Shulchan Aruch, or maybe because it's a doubt as to whether we make a blessing, or maybe we didn't accept it because we have a double doubt against Maran, for whatever reason. But whatever reason you have still boils down to the fact that the acceptance of Maran and Shulchan Aruch was not absolute. And therefore, today we're going to explore even more exceptions to this rule. There's one exception, by the way, to the exception. So, we have a rule. The rule is we accept Maran. The exceptions to the rule, we mentioned a few of them. Uh, double doubts against Maran, blessings against Maran, uh, so on, other such places, other books of Maran that are not the Shulchan Aruch. There's an exception to that rule. The exception is there was one unanimous place in which we accepted the rulings of Maran as law, and that's in Dinei Mamonot, in Source 10, in financial matters, monetary matters. Aside from very few places in the Sephardic Empire, in most situations you could not come to Betadin and say, I want to follow the opinion that's not like Maran. The judges in the Betadin rule on monetary matters between two parties, always like Maran. The reason for that is very simple. Because even if a posek was going to take other opinions into consideration, when it comes to actual law that you have to uphold in a court, that you have to uphold in terms of financial arbitration and mediation, you can't have opinions. There has to be a law. And because of that in Sephardic communities, the exception to having exceptions to Maran is when it came to deal with financial law. But really today we're not going to discuss much about financial law. I doubt many of you have been in a situation in which you'd have to deal with financial law, not in accordance with Maran, or yes, in accordance with Maran. And because of that, I wish to focus on more common occurrences in our life uh, in, which we will, um, uh, in which we will have more uh, consequences, whether or not we follow the rulings of Maran. So let's look at the exception to the rule, Berachot. I mentioned to you already from the Chida, from others, B'Tzimah Abba Shaul, that in situations where Maran says to recite a blessing, 
and others say not to recite a blessing, we rule against Maran. Again, I told you that was not my personal practice. A classic case of this is the following. If you take off your talit, you take off your talit, you go to the bathroom, you come back out, do you recite a blessing in your talit or not? Maran says, of course. Other poskim say, you don't. In what I've seen in the Sephardic community, nobody makes a bracha once they put on their talit. I do. I do. I took on my talit. I went to a place where I could not wear a talit. Maran says to make a bracha. I'm going to go to hell following Maran. That's wonderful. I'm okay with that. But nobody else is. Because there's a rule of sabal. We, when you're in doubt as to whether you make a bracha, you can say sabal even against the, wording, the rulings of Maran. Chacham Fa'ur says this is a very important point to analyze. Look in source 12. This rule of sabal, by the way, the concept of sabal is as follows. One rabbi says to make a blessing. If you do a mitzvah without reciting a blessing, did you fulfill the mitzvah? You put on tefillin without reciting a blessing. Did you fulfill the mitzvah of tefillin? Yes. What happens if you recite a blessing and you weren't supposed to recite a blessing? Do you violate a biblical prohibition? Yes. The logic behind sabal, safek berchot na'kel, is why would you risk your life in terms of a biblical prohibition that's one of the Ten Commandments just to appease a rabbinic opinion of reciting blessings in the first place? Now this is really not found in the writings of the Talmud. You find it more among the Geonim and the Rishonim. The Rambam is the one who really brings this concept of sabal into law as an actual law. And the Sefaradim have exaggerated so much with the laws of sabal that almost every blessing that you should be making, Sefaradim don't recite blessings on anything. It, it, I remember teaching a shiur here in Halakha to my community and one of the rabbis was discussing about you buy a new car. Can you recite a Shekhyanu on your new Lamborghini, your new Porsche, a brand new car worth $250,000? Can you say Chachyanu? The rabbi says, mm, we're not sure, maybe you shouldn't. You should go buy yourself a fruit you didn't eat in the last year and say a Chachyanu on this fruit and then have in mind it should cover your car. Do you understand the world of halakha where we've reached? We've reached the world of halakha where a posek is not sure whether the Lamborghini makes you happy enough. So go buy an apple that you were never going to eat in the grocery store and make a Chachyanu on that because that's happier than your car. You, you're in, a, in an upside down world of halakha. It's a chaotic system of halakha. Which barakah do you recite on a chocolate-covered raisin? Well, chocolate is shakol, the raisin is... I don't know if chocolate is actually shakol. Raisin is ha'etz, so what should you do? You should go take an apple, say, take a glass of water, recite shakol, that's the blessing on a chocolate-covered raisin. You didn't answer the question. You avoided answering the question. There must be a blessing that you recite on a chocolate-covered raisin, no? But that's the world in which we're operating right now. The fact that there is this rule of sabal against maran, teaches you something very important. That the rulings of Maran were not accepted as law. Because if they were accepted as law, nobody would have a problem reciting God's name if Maran tells you to do so. Chacham Fa'ul writes on the top of page 4 on the right, that there's in other places in which the Faradim don't accept the rulings of Maran. If there's someone else who argues on Maran, not even contemporaries of his generation. So for example, Chacham Fa'ur quotes here that there's a famous teaching among the Sevaradim that when the Arizal argues with Maran, you always rule like the Arizal against Maran. So when Bithak Luri Ashkenazi, the Mikubal, rules against Maran, the Posek, you always follow the Arizal and not Maran. Is the fact that this rule exists, whether you agree with it or not, the fact that it exists shows you that already with contemporaries of Maran, we say, if Maran would have seen what the Arizal wrote, he wouldn't have said what he said. Now this is already extended in the Sephardic world, says Khan Fa'u, that even rabbis that come after Maran, 
We say that if Maran would have known what this rabbi said, he wouldn't have said what he said. So, Chachmei Sfarad, you must tell us, do you accept the rulings of Maran or not? Is everything Yonatan Halevi told you in the last two weeks that we accepted the rules of Maran as if it's Mepi Agvura from Akadosh Bachu, the Shekhinah Mamash? Now you're telling me there's a hundred exceptions to whether or not we accepted Maran. What is going on here? It says, Chachmei that here you're finding that there are fissures, there are cracks in the acceptance of Maran. There's another place in which the Faradim don't accept the rulings of Maran. That has to do with Minhagim. In a case of Minhagim, where there's something that Sefaradim did before Maran wrote his Shulchan Aruch, we say that that Minhag overrides Maran's Shulchan Aruch. By the way, this is where this idea that custom overrides law. It's a silly thing to think that if there's a law in the Torah, that because your family didn't do something, you don't have to follow the law of the Torah. That's not what it means when a custom overrides a halakha. It means when there are two ways to observe a halakha, and one of them perhaps is ruled by the Shulchan Aruch, and one is not, your custom overrides the law of Maran to let you follow the law of somebody else that came before Maran. That's where this idea exists, at least in this realm of halakha. And I quote Rabbi Yosef Molcho in Source 13. He was a rabbi in Saloniki in Greece and later in Yerushalayim. And he writes that we accepted Maran in every situation except for when there was a custom that was prior to Maran. Rabbi Rafael Aharon ben Shimon. Rabbi Rafael Aharon ben Shimon actually came to visit, if I'm not mistaken, the United Kingdom. He was the chief rabbi of Egypt. He was the son of Rabbi David ben Shimon. Rabbi Rafael Aharon ben Shimon is one of my favorite chachamim, a real, a real favorite of mine. Rabbi David ben Shimon, his father was called Dvash, Tzuf Dvash. Honey, because his name is David Ben Shimon, acronym of Dvash. There's a synagogue in the old city of Jerusalem still named after him. He was the chief rabbi of the North African community in Yerushalayim. And his son became the chief rabbi of Egypt, wrote a famous book, Nahal Mitzrayim. Some wonderful things inside of that book. If you ever wondered why Sephardic rabbis don't always dress like Sephardic rabbis, I'll show you pictures of Rabbi Rafael Aaron Ben Shimon when he's in Egypt, is wearing a turban and a robe and sandals, and when he's visiting in Germany and other countries, he's wearing a, a long coat with tails and a top hat and he has a cane. You just dress the way you are to, to look like a normal human being. You're not supposed to look like a crazy person wherever you are. Rabbi Haram Shimon writes the same thing, that we accept the rulings of Maran except for when there's a custom that is different than that of Maran. A classic case, I can think of this for many of you. Uh, many Sevaradim have a custom to fold their talit on Shabbat. You take after your prayers, you take your talit, you fold it, you put your talit back. Try doing this in an Ashkenazi synagogue and you may be stoned to death. Another place you may want to try to do it and get stoned to death, if you do it in a Sephardic synagogue that follows the rulings of Rabbi Bar Yosef. You may have thought you just lit a fire in the middle of the Berakneset on Shabbat, not with a match, with the sticks and stones and you're cooking now a soup in the middle of Shabbat. That's what they'll treat you like. Why? I can't fold Talit on Shabbat. Maran quotes the Halakha, you're not allowed to fold Talit on Shabbat. But in the Bet Yosef, Maran already quotes the source. Maybe it's of the Kolbo. I cannot remember now who he quotes. That there is an opinion that you are allowed to fold your Talit on Shabbat. And that's a classic case of where Sephardim accepted a custom to do something on Shabbat. Maran came along and said it's not the case. And because of that, Sephardim continued to do their custom even though Maran ruled otherwise. Now, Chacham Fa'ur writes in Source 16 that it's very, very important to understand that this rule of a minhag overrides the Shulchan Aruch is not found until much later in history. In the times of Maran, minhagim didn't overrule Shulchan Aruch. There was a unique case, and it's not in the scope of today's show to discuss what happened. But Chachmei Svarad had to scramble quickly to come up with a scenario in which they were allowed to violate the words of the Shulchan Aruch they had just yesterday accepted. 
And because of that, they in invented this idea, literally invented a concept, that a minhag that you had overrides the rulings of the Shulchan Aruch. And it's very important, says Chaim Faur, it's me'ot chashuv, it's very important that they could prove that Maran himself would agree to them. And so really there's an easy place to find this proof, that's in source 17. Maran says that if in some countries, Sephardic Jews had a minhag already, even though we will rule otherwise, they should hold on to their minhag. They're not allowed to be lenient. If their custom was to be stringent and I came to say be lenient, they shouldn't be lenient. Now there's a dozen ways to interpret this teaching of Maran. Chacham Fa'ur says it's lacking integrity to use these words to prove that Maran says that his book is not valid in a place of uh, customs. Look in source 18. He brings two more places in which the, those who wish to say that you follow Minhagim over Maran, there's one case in laws of Shechita where Maran says, you're, this is the law unless you already have a previous practice to do otherwise and then it's okay. And there's another place in laws of Gitin uh, where you write a word with one Yod or two Yodin and then over there there's a, a problem of a custom. And Maran says if you have a custom to write it with two Yuds or one Yod, it's okay, do whatever your custom was even though I ruled one way. Says Chacham Faur, it's lacking integrity to say that these are proofs that the custom overrides Maran. But those are specific cases in which Maran felt that the custom wasn't so bad. And it's just a custom. You weren't violating a biblical prohibition. And because of that, he allowed that to exist. Sources 19 and onwards are, are complicated for me. Because I know that they're very dear to this group. And that is the teachings of the Rambam. And the relationship with the Rambam to Shulchan Aruch. I brought here uh, maybe six or seven sources that I'm not going to have time to read with you today. But I want you on your own, if you can, to read them. If not, I'm happy to schedule a show about this topic itself. In sources 19 and 20 and 21, Maran is on record in his book, Afkat Ochel, in his commentary in the Rambam, Kesav Mishneh, in two different places. Maran writes the following words, that the Rambam is the master of Eretz Israel. He is the ruler of Eretz Israel. His laws are the laws of Eretz Israel. And here in source 19, Maran is asked about a community which followed the Rambam, and now there are people that want them to follow a different rabbi. Says Maran, who is the person who is brazen enough to get Jews to stop following the Rambam and to only follow their opinion? How dare you tell a community to follow anyone aside from the Rambam? And that leaves us to deal with a mess of what happens when Maran argues with the Rambam. I can't solve that mess for you today, but in sources 22, uh, 23, Rabbi Chaim ben Veneste, is a unique Tamikham, wrote a book, It's one of the foremost books of Piske Halakha today on, on the writings of Shulchan Aruch. He was one of the main opponents of the false Mashiach, Shabtai Tzvi. He spent his life fighting Shabtai Tzvi. It happened towards the end of Shabtai Tzvi's life that Shabtai Tzvi broke into Rabbi Chaim's synagogue in Izmir, in Turkey and challenged him to a debate, and debated with him. Rabbi Chaim ben Veneste was convinced that Shabtai Tzvi was the Mashiach. And on that Motzei Shabbat, he abandoned the camp of the opponents of Shabtai Tzvi and went to become a follower of Shabtai Tzvi. That lasted for exactly nine months. Nine months later in which Shabtai Tzvi converts to Islam, and Rabbi Chaim ben Veneste realizes the mistake that he's made, and he goes back to join not just the opponents of Shabtai Tzvi, but the opponents of anybody who follows Shabtai Tzvi, even the descendants of those who follow Shabtai Tzvi. And here you find a very unique situation, which Chacham, for nine months, in today's term, a borrow lingo, he goes off the derech. 
he went to believe in a false Mashiach, and he came back. And the Jewish community doesn't hold it against him. They understand that people are human. They understand that Chachamim, even the greatest of them, make mistakes. There are many lessons to be learned from this story, not for today's show. He writes, though, that it's a fact. That the rulings of the Shulchan Aruch are all based on the Rambam. And therefore, anytime you find just Shulchan Aruch saying something, you can assume it's the Rambam, except for a few times when he doesn't. I was speaking to Arab Peretz two nights ago. He said the Chazon Ish made a list of maybe 10 or 12 times that Maran doesn't follow the Rambam. I don't know the numbers. I never sat down to analyze this myself. But really, then you could say that uh, Maran is 80 or 90% Rambam. Those who are big Hasidim of the Rambam will have a hard time with this. For the very simple reason that even though Maran may technically rule in law according to the Rambam, it would be very hard to say that the methodology of Maran and the methodology of the Rambam are anything close to being identical with each other. And though, even though they may have reached the same conclusions, or he, he, Maran adopts the Rambam's conclusions, it doesn't necessarily mean that Maran is symbiotic with the Rambam's outlook on life. A source that's brought for that is that in all of the writings of the Bet Yosef, I believe that Maran only quotes the Morin of Uchim once as a side comment, in which you see that this was not clearly not the philosophy of Maran, even though this may be the way in which Maran ruled Halachot. Rabbi Chaim Chizkiyahu Medini, this Dei he was the rabbi of Hebron, Yerushalayim. He also writes that Maran HaShulchan Aruch is essentially the Rambam. Rabbi Yosef writes the same thing. You know, here he quotes the Chazonish. And he mentions over and over and over again all of the sources that everybody accepted the rulings of the Rambam. Even Maran. In source 26, there's an edition of the Rambam's letters called Pe'er Hado, put out by Rabbi David Yosef, the son of Rabbi Yosef. My opinions on that is my own to keep to myself. Uh, this book has an introduction by Rabbi Vadi Yosef, and he writes there something fascinating. That in situations where Maran rules one way, but in the Rambam's letters it says something different, Maran himself would take back his words and rule like the letters of the Rambam. Now how you deal with this, I don't know. But he makes the pitch that the Rambam is the Marad and Maran would retract had he known the Rambam would have said what he said. The Marad Bach, Rabbi Levi bin Khabib, says that the Rambam was so accepted among the Sephardim that if you ever have a problem, you don't understand the Rambam, you should say that it's our brains that don't understand the Rambam because the Rambam is always right. Rabbi Yaw of Izmir was a big Kabbalist. He was the author of a book called Shevet Musar. Shevet Musar was an old school Sephardic Musar work that was very popular in Sephardic homes. You could think along the lines of Pelio Ed. So it was one of those books that was very common. He writes, the Rambam is a Rosh HaChachamim. He's the head of all of the rabbis. They're from Moshe Rabbeinu until Moshe Ben Maimon, the Rambam. There was no other person as great as him. Harapir has told me that this is not an exaggeration. This is the truth. The truth is that Moshe Ad Moshe from Moshe Rabbeinu to the Rambam, there's nobody like him. Maybe you could say the Chachamim of the Talmud were, were that great. Fine, the Chachamim of the Talmud operated as, a, as an assembly. There were many of them. And the Rambam single-handedly changed the face of Judaism. Was the Chacham in that regard like Moshe Rabbeinu? Rabbetion Abba Shaul writes here in Source 30. So here you find something unique. That wherever Maran does not discuss a halakha, because Maran doesn't talk about all the halakhot. The Rambam has from A to Z. The halakhot relevant if there's a temple, if we're in Eretz Israel, if we go to war, if we have a Sanhedrin. Maran just deals with day-to-day halakhot that are relevant to the Jew living in exile. And so there are gaps. You want to know how to do something, but Maran doesn't tell you how to do it. The default, says Chacham Ben Abba Shaul, is always to default back to the Rambam. 
Whatever the Rambam says, that's what you should do. I'll give you a personal example. When I decided to put Tchelet on my Tzitziot, right, I was debating for a long time, how should I put the Tchelet on my Tzitziot? How do you tie it? You know, we haven't tied the Tchelet for a long time. It's, so the Rambam famously says that one out of eight strings has to be blue. Other opinions that the whole string, meaning two out of eight strings, have to be blue. I don't know what I should do. I started looking in different books of Halakha. I, I knew what the Rambam said. So of course, I defaulted back to the Rambam. The Maran doesn't tell you how to tie tchelet. You didn't have tchelet. You default back to the Rambam. There's a fact. And one night I was uh, in my bed. I, I had a student at the time who was really big into Kabbalah. He let me borrow a book of Rabbi Chaim Vital. I, I haven't looked in the book since then. Uh, but I was uh, skimming through this book of Rabbi Chaim Vital and I'm finding over there. Rabbi Chaim Vital writes that Rizal insisted that if we have tchelet, we have to tie it like the Rambam with one blue string out of eight. And I said, if you manage to find a situation where the Arizal and the Rambam are on the same page, I'm signing up for that package, and that's how I tie my Tichelet today. But you find, again, there's a dual loyalty, says Chambet Shalom between Maran and the Rambam. Perhaps the most puzzling of these dual loyalties is the next one. And that's on page 6 on the bottom left. That is the Arizal. I didn't come here today to speak about Kabbalah. I didn't come to speak about the influence of Kabbalah and Halakha. I didn't come to give you an opinion on what I think about the Zohar or other works of Kabbalah. It's beyond the scope of today's view. I'm dealing with facts. Facts of there are Sephardic communities who accepted the rulings of Maran except for when the Arizal disagrees. In which regard did these Sephardim hold the Arizal? Listen carefully. Rabbi Chaim bin Menashe Satan. Rabbi Chaim bin Menashe Satan is a special Chacham. He codified many of the Minhagim of Eretz Yisrael in his book Eretz Chaim. He was a rabbi in Sfat. He writes that we never recite a blessing when there's a doubt as to when to recite the blessing. Sabah, remember the rule I told you before? Except for in one case. In a case, as Linan Maran. We follow the Arizal when he says to make a blessing, even if Maran says don't make a blessing, it's God's name in vain, and the Arizal says yes to do it, we listen to the Arizal. And I'm assuming that all of you who think, all of you who think, well, I would never do that, I would never follow the Arizal over Maran, I'm assuming that 90% of you recite a blessing in the morning in your blessing, which Maran says is forbidden to recite. The Arizal says you have to recite. And, and the truth is, I'm not sure what the Spanish-Portuguese custom is. I would love to hear, because it's a community that really wasn't so affected by uh, this change in, in, in Sidurim. But that blessing is in every Sephardic Sidur that I've ever seen. And here you see that the Sephardim, when Maran says it's God's name in vain, and Arizal says, no, you have to say this blessing, they will never say a blessing that Maran says to say and someone disagrees. But if Maran disagrees with Arizal, Arizal, you still recite a blessing like him. It's not just his own opinion. Rabbi Yitzchak ben Moshe Abulafia. There are many Rabbi Yitzchak Abulafias. There's a reason I wrote Rabbi Yitzchak ben Moshe. He was born in 1824 in Damascus. Passed away in 1910 in Yerushalayim. Was buried in Tiveria. Very unique story. If you recall in my shiur, I believe it was on, uh, in the UK class, Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin, on Reform Jewry, Rabbi Yitzchak Moshe Chazan. That whole shiur... We discussed Alilat Damasik, the Damascus affair. That, If you're familiar with that part of Jewish history where Jews were persecuted for something they didn't do, it was a blood libel of sorts. Not of sorts, it was a blood libel. Uh, Rabbi Yitzchak's father, Moshe Abulafia, was tortured tremendously by the Arabs in that time in that story. And he converted to Islam and spent the rest of his life proving that Judaism was false and writing terrible things about Judaism. Rabbi Yitzchak flees Damascus because of that situation where his father has become a Muslim and an advocate against Judaism and reestablishes himself in Yerushalayim as a Tamil Chacham. And he writes that against the Arizal, 
you cannot say Sabal against the Ariza. The Ariza says to bless, you recite a blessing. Even if, even if uh, Maran says not to, you always recite a blessing like the Ariza. Rav Chaim Chizkiyahu Medini in this Dei Chemed writes the same thing in source 33. The Chida in source 34 writes the same thing. Rabbi Yosef Chaim of Baghdad, the Benish Chai. He's the rabbi of Kav Chaim Sofer. He writes the same thing. That against the Arizal, you don't say Sabal. Meaning, we rule like the Arizal. And even though we might be going to, uh, violating a biblical prohibition of saying Hashem's name in vain, when the Arizal says something, it's like Eliyahu Hanavi told him to say it. Now, whether you're allowed to bring divine messages from Eliyahu Hanavi into Halakha, we could have a shiur about that at a different time as well. Rabbi Yaakov Chaim Sofer in source 36. He is the... Student of Benishchai, he's also the rabbi of Rabbi Udat Sadka, who's the rabbi of Rabbi Ben Zion Abba Shaul. So if you want to follow this, four generations of rabbi students. Yaakov Chaim Sover writes, That's the custom in the Sephardic world. That when the Arizal says to recite a blessing, you recite the blessing. Nobody cares. And in source 37, Chacham Ben Zion Abba Shaul shows you that this is exactly another case in which you find that Sephardim accept the rulings of Maran except for when they didn't. Source 38 was very important for me to bring up. And that is that Rabbi Chaim ben Veneste, who we quoted before, the Kedat HaGadolah, he writes that in general, the Mekubalim believe that you're not allowed to force your Kabbalistic opinions on those who follow Halakha. I have a book at home from one of the Mekubalim who brings 17 cases in which the Mekubalim do things differently than the Zavaradim who follow Shulchan Aruch, and that the Mekubalim are not allowed to open up their mouth, they have no right to tell those who follow Maran not to follow Maran. We don't live in that world anymore today. Today, uh, the Mekubalim are everywhere, and they're getting you to follow things everywhere. Whether it's a positive development or not, I, like I said, it's not within the scope of today's shiur, but it's there. I just wanted to throw that there. And that brings me to the summary of today's shiur. Chacham Ben-Tion Abba Shaul summarizes everything I told you as follows. Uvaha salikna. From here we conclude. Shekabalatenu adivrei maran ena kabalat hadvarim betorat vadai. That first and foremost, when we say we accepted the rulings of maran, it's a general rule, but not an established rule. It's not a fact. Milvad b'dinei mamonot shu betorat vadai. Except for by financial matters. In financial matters, maran's word is the final word. We mentioned because you have to have a civil society that functions properly. This connects earlier, if you remember the first shiur, the first source I quoted to you there, was the English introduction of Rabbi Yosef Aur to his book on Rabbi Islam Moshe Chazan. The reason why Sephardim accept the code of law in the first place is because unlike Ashkenazim, Sephardim operate an empire with court systems, with chief rabbis, with, with legal rule over their population. A, a national autonomy was the ideal by Sephardim that we lived pretty much until the establishment of the State of Israel. And because of that, you had to have a functional court system. It doesn't really make a difference which code of law, but there must be a code of law. In Israel, you have a unique thing where you could be sitting in court, and uh, let's say this happens a lot with land and territories and who does this house belong to. And in Israel, if you have a deed that belongs to British law or Turkish law, Ottoman law, the bagats, the Supreme Court will say, well, in this session, we're not allowed to rule according to Israeli law. We have to rule according to Ottoman law. In any functional country in the world, that would never happen. But this is Jews trying to be more democratic than any democracy in the world. And here you have a situation where Sephardim accept Maran, except for when it's going to poorly impact the civil affairs of a Bedin. The next thing, whenever Maran didn't give us his opinion, we, have, we always follow the Rambam in a case where Maran doesn't tell us what to do. 
And we're going to the Arizal, Divrei Arizal, Anu Noagim Kidvarav Betorat Vadai. And we rule like the Arizal as if Moshe Rabbeinu said it on Sinai. So here we have a few exceptions to the rule, which will be Benzion Abashu, just packaged, uh, wrapped up for us in this summary. These are the rules, the exceptions to when Sephardim follow Maran. I'm not telling you it's a good thing. I'm not telling you it's a bad thing. I'm just telling you that it is a thing. It's there. It exists. Chacham Fa'ur now gives his explanation of why. What does this mean? Practically, what does it mean? In source 40. If the analysis of all of these Chachamim we mentioned until now is correct. And if it was correct that historically there was a need to unite Jews around the Shulchan Aruch, all of that is outside of my current essay, says Chamfor. I'm not dealing with that. In this essay, I only wish to show you even after the Horotav Shalmaran, the rulings of Maran were spread out across the diaspora, there were groups of Poskim that they doubted the absolute acceptance of the rulings of Maran. And they felt on page 8 that it was their permission, they had the right to consult with other halachic opinions aside from those which Maran set forth. Or even to rely on their own view of the halacha, not just on Maran's own view of halacha. Muvan, it's obviously clear, there are definitely Sephardim, who in the case of Sabah, like I told you, we make a blessing. There are Sephardim that in the case of contradictions in Maran, like Hamad Yosef says, there's no contradiction in Maran. There are definitely Sephardim, says Hamfa'u, that accept the rulings of Maran as if they are fact. Baram, nonetheless, the Chachamim essentially developed post-Maran a certain methodology of balance. They developed rules explaining why we rule against Maran. We accept the rules of Maran except for when we don't. Kindly disagreeing with Maran. But essentially they also undermine and uproot Maran's absolute control over the Sephardic community. Chacham Fa'ur summarizes as follows that even though we will continue saying this general statement, we accepted the rulings of Maran, among many, many, many Sephardic poskim, we respect Maran, there's a respect of Maran, but also there's the ability for a person to follow a different opinion, to do something a little differently than what is mentioned before. And I think that's where I wanted to conclude today with this last piece. And I know for those of you who it's getting late for, it's completely okay if you have to go out, I understand uh, 100%. This last piece I won't read to you entirely because it's long. But I wish to add this element. And this is a unique approach to how we view Maran's acceptance of halachot. There was a famous Tamil Khan passed away in 2016. His name was Rabbi He was born in Rabat in Morocco, unintentionally. What do I mean unintentionally? Of course, intentionally. Uh, he was an Israeli rabbi. His father already lived in Israel. But his father was a Shadar. His father would travel back and forth to Morocco to collect funds for the yeshivot or for the establishment in Israel. And so his father was in Morocco with a family to collect funds, and that's where he was born. So even though he was born of Moroccan stock, and he was born in Morocco, his family actually had left Israel to Morocco many years before that. He passed away, and is buried in Yerushalayim, 2016. He was a chief rabbi of Netanya, a brilliant Tamikacham, understudied, underappreciated, but very much by those who know his Torah, love him and, and everything he stood for. 
in the first volume of his book, Chemdag which is the, I have it here. Chemdag it's a hard book to come by today, but you can get a PDF online for free. Chemdag is a work in which Rabbi David Shadush, unlike other rabbis who will answer 100 questions in one volume, he maybe answers 13, 14 questions in one book. But in, in complete detail, with true, genuine analysis, he has here 61 chapters, 61 chapter essay on whether Sefaradim really accepted the rule of Maran or not. And obviously that's not in the scope of today. I cannot read to you 61 chapters. But the last two chapters are very important. In source 41, he writes, if the poskim didn't really accept the rulings of Maran, absolutely, how did this legend come to fruition? He said, there are many poskim, even that led certain poskim to say that we accept the rulings of Maran as if Hashem said it himself, HaKadosh Baruch Hu spoke the words of Maran, that's how far, the where did this come from? And he explains in the bottom right of page 8. This is the story of how this happens. This is the Rambam wrote a book. What does it mean that the Rambam's rules were accepted? It means that the Rambam put together a work of A to Z of Halachot that everybody could study from. Regular people, Tamidei Chamim, everybody. He says, and what happens is that in, all across the countries where people study Rambam, someone comes to ask the rabbi a question. The rabbi says, why do I have to go back and analyze the Talmud again? I'll open up the Rambam, Shabbat, I'm gonna open up Machalot Asurot, whatever it is, I'm gonna look for the answer and I'll tell you the answer. And these books became popular. That's why they became accepted. People used them, they were useful, they provided Tamidei Chachamim with answers to Halakha, and therefore that's how they were accepted. But what happens in other countries? Sephardic countries, we mentioned the Fal Darosh. For them, their rabbis had access to the books of the Rosh. And for them, they felt, whenever we have a question, we're going to open up the writings of the Rosh and come out with an answer. And therefore, in those communities, the Rosh was accepted. This is you find in Algier, the Tashbats. His writings were popular there, and the rabbis used them to answer people's questions there. And because of that, they became accepted. The same thing happens with Maran. Maran writes a Shukhan Aruch. And the first four times he prints it, it's just Shukhan Aruch. The fifth time in Maran's lifetime, it's printed already with the notes of the Ramah. This becomes a goldmine for Sephardic and Ashkenazi rabbis alike. This book contains every single opinion you wanted to know in the two, in the Bet Yosef, Shukhan Aruch, and you are able to answer everybody's questions without having to pull out a thousand books or knowing how to analyze things on your own. And this book becomes accepted because it's useful. It's practical. It helps the rabbis in the field. Ultimately, that's who leads communities. And that's how something becomes accepted. He said it becomes Sefer Mushlam, top left. It's a, it's a complete book. It's a, it's a wholesome book. And Sefaradim rule like Maran. The Ashkenazi rabbis will tell their students like what the Ramah said. And then he mentions when the Zohar comes out, different things start to change. Tefillin HaKolamoyed, we mentioned here, uh, wrapping up all the other minagim, not within the context of today's shul. He says the last sentence here on page 8. He said, but we never find a situation where all of the Jews got together and accepted the rulings of the Shulchan Aruch. This didn't happen in one place, standing in one spot in front of one Bet Adin. This happened because Maran's teachings spread out throughout the world. They became popular, and because of that, they were accepted. Not because there was some standing, a formal situation, in which all the rabbis got up and accepted the rulings of Maran. He mentioned something very unusual in source, the end of source 41 on page 9. He says, you have to imagine what Sfat is like. 
Tzfat is the capital of the Sephardic world now, outside of Spain. You have, he writes here, Rabbi Shalomo Halavi Alkavet, author of the Chadurim. You have Rabbi Israel Najara. I don't know why he writes Rash Najara. Rabbi Israel Najara, who is famous for his Putin. You have Maran. You have Arizal. You have Rabbi Chaim Vital. You have Rabbi Moshe Kordovero. You have a world of Sfat that is bursting at the seams of Sephardic personalities. And then you have Jews that that glorious age ends. And there's a certain desire, just like you sing your Shabbat songs of Rabbi Israel Najara, a certain emotional attachment to a time that was beautiful, a time that was golden. And he says that there's a psychological element here of wanting to hold on to that glory of Sfarad that was Maran's generation. And that leads me to the final source of tonight, and that's source 42. Rabbi David Shalush takes much issue with the stance of Chacham of Yosef, who was his colleague. They studied together by Rabbi Ezra He says, it bewilders me. Which sin? And the rabbis who came before him. You say that a rabbi who rules against Maran sins. Which sin is that? Which chet? We've already proved that Maran was not the ultimate ruler of Eretz Israel. Maran himself, if he's the ruler of Eretz Israel, he rules against the ruler of Eretz Israel before him, the Rambam. And every rabbi in his generation essentially rules against the leader of the generation before that. He says, in which case, there really isn't a situation where Maran is the final authority. Which halakha did you violate? And he writes here on the left column on page 9, Siuma de Milta, and therefore I wish to tell you, in conclusion, En divrei Maran zatzal kektuvim uchumsurim kemoshem the words of Maran are not Torah Moshe Misinai. They were not given in a house Sinai. In a situation where you have a Tamid Chacham, not every Tamid Chacham, not your regular rabbi, a Gamir V'savir, it's somebody who knows the entire Torah, backwards and forwards, everything. And who's a Gamir V'savir? The Rambam is a Gamir V'savir. What do you mean Gamir V'savir? There's not one Halakha in the world Rambam didn't write about. There's not one area in Halakha Rambam didn't know. That's a gamir v'savir. So if you have another personality like the Rambam, I'm using this intentionally. And he's able to go down to the deep depths of halakha. And in this particular situation, he goes to the shas and the poskim. In this particular issue, and he feels that the halakha is like one of the rabbis that Maran didn't agree with. And in peer review, his colleagues agree with him that his new analysis, innovative analysis of the sugya holds water in halakha, he's allowed to rule according to that opinion which is in contradiction to Maran. A dayan is not a clerk. A posek is not an office manager. He's a person with an intellect. And it's an obligation for a dayan to rule based on what his eyes see. And how much more so, it's clear. That it's improper to attack entire communities that follow one halakha or not different than Maran does. And not like my dear friend, the chief rabbi, Yerobadi Yosef writes, don't attack communities that follow different opinions than Maran when they're following chachamim that are gamir v'savir, that were able on their own to decide their own halakhic. Uh, answered 
And here on the bottom of page nine, in bold, and you can't say that you live in a world that this place is the place of Maran. This is a little derogatory. He says, when you decide it's not because this place, this custom of this place, it's not the rocks or the trees that decide the place, it's the people who live in a place that decide the place. By the way, for those of you in London, Rabbi uh, Daniel once showed me a teshuvah of a famous Ashkenazi Chacham, who writes that because London is the place of Sephardim, when Dayanim write Gitin, they have to write Gitin like the Sephardim do. Now, I don't know what's actually done in London today, I'm not sure, but this is an added, meaning it's not, the, it's not the London Bridge that makes London London, it's the Jews who live there who dictate what is the minhag of that place. And therefore, Sof Davar on page 10, finally, even though I wrote everything, even though everything I've written so far is based on our rabbis and the Talmud, I'm warning against any person in the Shi'ul, this is not me writing, this is Rabbi David Shudush writing, that every rabbi has the Torah in his hands, that he can follow any halachic opinion he wants, because now we just undermine Maran. Nobody has that right. This should never happen in Am Yisrael. We're talking about a Tamil Chacham, who I mentioned is a Gamir V'savir. Who's an expert in the secrets of the Torah. Someone who's of pure intellect, of clear logic. Who knows logically how to weigh things. Someone who knows how to reach the conclusions properly. And he's the kind of person who won't cause people to sin and knows how to properly rule halachot. This is a who can argue with Maran. Someone has all of these qualities and more. Someone has Yirat Shamayim. That before they are wise, they are a God fearing person. Says Rabbi David Shalush, I am talking theoretically. He said, I am not certain that in our generation we have a person who fits this criteria. Then if the Pari Chadash writes that in his generation there were one or two people alive who fit this bill, our generation, which are orphans, the sons of orphans, which kind of Chachamim do we have today? And if the rabbis who came after Maran, these rabbis saw the way the Torah declined, trust scholarship declined in the following generations. And we see that those rabbis who were definitely from the greatest of our people, they decided and were determined to hold on to the Shulchan Aruch and the rulings of Maran in order so Am Yisrael would continue. In our generation, and this last generation before the Mashiach. And in our generation where anybody who wants to become a rabbi can become a rabbi. Anybody. You know how easy it is to become a rabbi? So I tell people just skip the rabbi. Everyone can be a rabbi today. It's not a special title. It doesn't mean anything. You meet a rabbi. A rabbi can be an Amaharetz. Most rabbis maybe are Amaharetz. You're dealing with a person, you're dealing with a, I'm sorry, I don't mean to, to be rude, it's the reality. You go to Bet Knesset, the rabbi can't even read Hebrew. He's a rabbi. I'm not talking about other denominations. Ah, you know, I mean, I, 
this rabbi, one rabbi called me up, I told you once, he called me up, he says, you, you do giur? I, I told him, you know, the halakha and giur says, I don't even own a shulchan aruch, the laws of giur. You don't even own a shulchan aruch, the laws of giur, but you call to complain about our giur, who are you? Who made you a rabbi? Says, I'm concerned, everybody today could be a rabbi. We have many Ami Haaretz today that think they can rule Halakha, then they'll permit that which is prohibited. How much more so that we have to be careful to follow the rulings of Maran. Because of this concern exactly. I debated for a long time whether I should bury this writing that I wrote or I should publicize it. It was so difficult for me to bury this book of 61 chapters that I wrote about Maran and the Shulchan Aruch. I wanted to bury them, but I couldn't bring myself to do it. HaKadosh Baruch gave me these teachings. The next bold section, I told myself in my heart, Because of some fools, I'm going to rid Am Yisrael of my work. This is what it says. That the ways of Hashem are straight, and evil people will stumble on them, and righteous people will walk properly on them. And the Chachamim, they said, In order to fulfill the words of our Rabbi Aftalion, who writes in Perkei Avot, Rabbis, that's, I think that's a mistake, I, I must have typed that up incorrectly. Rabbis, be worried about your words. Because maybe you'll say something wrong and you'll end up in exile. It's like Rabbi Yonah and the Rashbats explain. It's very, you must clarify the things that you say. So that heretics will not come and use your words to mislead. And I pray that no stumbling blocks will come out of my words and that my colleagues, my friends will be happy with that which I said. And I believe that this is where I wish to conclude on this note. Rabbi David Shalush said something fascinating. It deserves a series of shiurim in its own right. And that is that no Talmud Chacham who's a genuine Talmud Chacham has lost the right to examine Halakha on their own. No genuine Tamit Chacham has now been forced to conform to a system of Halakha that they know is incorrect. But what we have accepted is that not every person in the world, not every Joe Shmo can show up here and decide, I'm deciding Halakhot, I'm getting rid of Shulchan Aruch, we, I don't care what is Maran right, nobody has the right to do that. The only one is one who's a Gabir Vasavir, one who's a Yerash one who knows how to learn Halakha properly. Not everybody is Yerash and his Tamit Chacham knows how to rule Halakha properly. I believe the Mi'iri writes that there are some Tamil Chamim that are geniuses in Talmud, but they don't even know how to find the door into the world of Halakha. They, they, they lost. A person has to know who we are, what we are, which generation we are in. But for me, this is crucial. Because for the last two Shi'ulim, I've pushed on you this idea that we've accepted the rulings of Maran, we've accepted the rulings of Maran, we've accepted the rulings of Maran. And in the end of last Shi'ul, I told you, and I'm looking forward to a generation of Chachamim that are able to sit around the same table and bring about a new code of law that fits, that works, that all of Amisal can agree on. And I told you, I don't even think it will happen in my generation. And so it seems like a contradiction. Do we follow Shulchan Aruch or do we not? This is what I told you in the end of my first year, in the question and answer session. We follow the Shulchan Aruch until we have a better alternative. Until we have a better leadership that steps up and saves Amisal from the chaos that we are already in. To further destroy Halakha, to further fragment Am Yisrael, 
is already going to be a disaster. We're already in a catastrophe. Haman says, There's one nation that's scattered. We've made Haman proud. We are more scattered than Haman could have ever imagined. It's not the right way to keep fragmenting and keep fragmenting and keep fragmenting. But it's important to know that halakha is not static. Halakha is dynamic. And when there are dynamic Talmidei Chachamim that are able to analyze a halakha, a shukhan aruch, that may seem static, they reserve the right in their positions of leadership for the communities that study with them, that learn with them, to do things possibly differently than that which Maran would have wanted. But that is the way of halakha. That is the way of the Torah. And so therefore, we accepted the rulings of Maran, except for when we didn't. We've accepted the rulings of Maran, except for when there are genuine concerns that Talmidei Chachamim have that need to be addressed through innovative and unique understandings of halakha. Bezat Hashem, I was an honor learning with you. I'm going to stick around here for as long as I can to be sitting with you and answering your questions, but I hope that I've shed some light, at least in the last three shiurim, on this complicated matter of the relationship that Sephardim have with the Shulchan Aruch, and what does it really mean that we accepted the rulings of Marana Shulchan Aruch. And I ask, that anything that I said should not cause anything negative to happen in Am Yisrael, but only positive things to bring us to a place of Yerat Shamaim. We should merit very soon to have that light with us. Thank you so much for having me.